Let's turn to Romans 11, please. That's not where that verse is, but. You might want to check the information table for upcoming events. And we're still praying, of course, for the disaster-stricken areas in our country and elsewhere, Puerto Rico and elsewhere. You know this particular person as Dollar Bill, but his real name is Reverend William Garnett. And he's hiding out in an overflow room. People don't realize I can see in all of them. See you. And he has reached a certain decade today. Third or fourth or something. Maybe even past that. So let's not let him escape. Happy birthday, Dollar Bill. Let's not let him escape. Give him a warm, a warm welcome into a new decade. I always like to tell people that when they turn a certain age, that it's really, you jump up one on them. In other words, if someone just turns 30, I like to say, you just entered your 31st year. Somebody hits 70, which I plan to do in about a quarter century. You can say, I just started my eighth decade. Think about that. Make you, it'll, it'll lift your spirits. It'll give you <laughs> elevating grace. This is part two of, hey, Gentile Christians, curb your enthusiasm. This is part two. We'll turn to Romans 11 for that. In Romans eleven thirteen, Paul identifies himself as a minister to the Gentiles. And he says it's to arouse Israel, his people after the flesh, to jealousy. He's talking about a gospel ministry to the Gentiles, known as the pagans, that overflows to the Jews. In Romans 15.8, Paul flips the script. That's a new saying I guess people use today when something changes and they don't expect it. You say, you flip the script on me. Well, God flips the script many times in the scriptures. In fact, he flips the scriptures sometimes and presents them in a way that we don't expect and in a shocking way. You'll notice today, as I mentioned this beginning of the week, one of the messages in the week, that today is September 24th, which means that the Lord has not returned yet, as some have predicted, on the 23rd. So we're still here. Now, what they always do, and I just want to warn you of this, because this isn't the last time this will happen. They always do this. They predict a date. Then when it gets closer, they say, well, I didn't really mean exactly on that date. But on that date, certain things will start to happen. And things are always happening. And so people want to know what to expect when the Lord comes. I'll tell you what to expect when the Lord comes. All Israel will be saved. All the Gentiles would have filled up the people of God. Jesus Christ will be glorified. You'll know when that day comes. You'll know. And so there's a lot of enthusiasm about eschatology that ought to be curbed because it's based in ignorance of the scriptures and it's based in a, in a hopeless kind of thing. You keep presenting this to people and you make them wait for a hope that never comes and you begin to hurt the hopes of the church. You begin to give the reason to the unbeliever to laugh at your Christian predictions and so it's just not a good thing. It's a, better, it's a better thing to get immersed in the water of the word. There are many scholars I study today that are extremely enthusiastic about people getting baptized, meaning in water. I'm far more enthusiastic. Now get baptized if you want. Christ didn't send me here to baptize, but to preach the gospel of Christ. But get baptized in water if you want. But here's more important thing get baptized and immersed in the water of the word in Ephesians 5:26 now you are clean through the word which i've spoken to you there's no way of living a christian life no way of living the life of the coming age in the present time 
apart from immersing yourselves ourselves in the word of God. And, of course, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Those are just side notes. So Paul talks in Romans eleven thirteen about a gospel ministry that he's been given to the Gentiles, but it overflows to the Jews. In Romans 15 and verse 8, Paul says, he flips the script. Talking about Christ, he said, Christ became a minister to the circumcision, that is to Israel. Christ became a minister to Israel, but then he says, on behalf of the truth of God, for the confirmation of the promises to the patriarchs. Now, the promises to the patriarchs is the one promise that's repeated over and over again. It's the promise that God will bless all the nations, including Israel, in his seed. And the seed is Christ. He arises from the patriarchs. He is God over all, blessed forever in number in rather in Romans nine five. And so Christ became a minister to the circumcision. Paul's called to the Gentiles. Christ became a minister to the Jews, but it also goes on to say, so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. And this was illustrated, of course, I think one of my favorite illustrations of this is the episode when a woman comes to Jesus Christ. He's gone out of the environs of Israel to a place called Tyre and Sidon in Phoenicia. It's a Greek place, essentially. And he's in the region, and a woman comes to him, and the scripture says in Mark 7.26 that she's a Syrophoenician woman. It makes it even clearer if you look at Matthew fifteen twenty two and following, as well as Mark seven twenty six, that she's a woman of Canaan, a Canaanite woman. When you think of Canaan, you think of the seven tribes that Joshua was told to conquer. But you even go back further, and you hear Genesis nine twenty five. Noah said, "Cursed be Canaan," and so. Many of the Jews had that as ringing in their ears, cursed be Canaan. So here comes a woman from Canaan. Here comes a a woman who is Greek in her heritage. Here comes a woman who is outside of Israel. And Jesus curbs the enthusiasm of his disciples because she's outside the house of Israel. And Jesus, and this is extremely important for interpretation, especially in, in Paul, Jesus sometimes voices or gives an echo to the thinking of other people. He doesn't intend to say that himself. He's not speaking himself. He speaks to echo the inner thoughts of people around him. So he says to this woman, she asks, she cries out to him because she thinks she's supposed to be at a distance. And she cries out and she says, have mercy on me. My daughter is vexed with a demon. The worst kind of misery that can be suffered in this world is demonically influenced, demonically instigated, psychological misery. And Jesus seems aloof. He's with these other guys that he's called. They're all Israelites. And he says, I didn't come for the dogs. I came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I didn't come for dogs, which is one of the words that the Jewish Christian enthusiasts use for Gentiles, Gentile dogs, or they call them goyim, or they call them heathen, or they call them pagans. But Jesus is kind of kidding her because he uses the word for the puppy dog, the domesticated dog. So he's kind of giving her a little bit of a hint. But she says to him, that's true, Lord. I know your purpose. It's to come to, you're a minister to the circumcision. I get it. You're here for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But even the puppy dogs get the scraps from the table of the master, the master's table, the Lord's table. And Jesus said, you know something? I've never seen faith like this. This woman has faith. She has intuition. I haven't seen it in all of Israel, he says, when he talks about a Gentile centurion. And of course, he's jabbing his disciples. What has he done? He's curbed their enthusiasm. They're the ones that are saying, 
we got to get rid of this woman. She keeps persisting. We've got to get rid of this woman. And Jesus just voices their enthusiasm that needs to be restrained and curbed. It's Jewish Christian enthusiasm against the Gentiles. But Paul flips the script again. And in Romans eleven thirteen, Paul challenges the loud-mouthed triumphalism of some Gentile Christians in Rome. And this is very important because I'm going to, I'm planning to teach Romans in a verse by verse way, or at least in a comprehensive way. That is, get the whole epistle together. And this is one of the most important interpretive things. There are five groups in Rome. It's more divided and fractured and fractionalized than Corinth was. The divisions are more serious than they were even in Corinth. And it's based on an enthusiasm on one side that was probably influenced by a gospel teacher who was a false teacher and enthusiasm on the other side that was a reaction to that teacher and a misinterpretation of Paul. So we'll get into these five groups. But when Paul flips the script here, incidentally, when, he, when these people are thinking about the cursed Canaanites, God flips the script on them. Because in Galatians 3.13, Christ became a curse. Christ became a curse, took away the curse. He took away the curse in Deuteronomy 27.26. Cursed is everyone who does not do the law in all that it commands. He flipped the script on that one when Christ became a curse for us. He became a curse for the Gentiles. He became the curse of Canaan. He became all the curses that are against humankind. He became the curse that was on Adam for the sweat of his brow. When he received the crown of thorns, it revealed that he was becoming a curse for all in Adam. Because from the ground will come thorns and thistles, God said. Cursed be the ground for your sake, Adam. Adam came from the earth and was earthly. The second man came from heaven was the man from heaven. He came down and wore those thorns and thistles on his brow to show that he was taking the curse of the ground, the curse on all creation, the curse of the man from the ground, the man of earth, Adam. He takes the curse against the Canaanites, against the Greeks, against the pagans. And so that Paul says, so that we may be partakers of the blessing of Abraham. The blessing of Abraham is justification, rectification, reconciliation to God. And so God didn't spare his son as he spared Isaac on Mount Moriah. God did not spare his own son on Mount Calvary, but freely gave him up on behalf of us all, says Romans 8.32. And all goes back to Romans 5, 18 to 19, all mankind. Him having given his son freely for us all and not sparing him, how shall he not now freely give us all things? God so loved the world that he gave us his son. God so loved his son that he gave, us the, gave his son the world. And he so loves us in Christ that he gives us all things in him. This is the gospel that Paul preached. So flip the script on curbing Jewish enthusiasm, and you got Paul challenging the wrong enthusiasm of some Gentile Christians in Rome. They were from a faction that we don't really get uncovered until Romans 14. They're called the strong in faith. In other words, they have certain liberties. They have a liberty in Christ. They know about it. We all have liberty in Christ. But they were flaunting certain things against those who were called the weaker in faith, mainly Jewish Christians who still held on to certain things in table, fellowship, kosher meals, days, Sabbaths. They still were kind of not yet over that yet. And so the Gentiles who were so-called strong in faith were often flaunting their liberty and taking their liberty too far in many cases. In fact, some of them actually believed what Paul totally demolished. 
let us go out and continue in sin that grace may abound. They were actually, some of them were actually saying that. So, of course, you have the Jewish Christians reacting against this pagan libertine attitude, and rightly so. But there's this divisiveness now that's fractured this place. Paul wants to go to Jerusalem with a collection to show unity of the pagan Christians, the Gentile Christians, and the Jewish persecuted Christians in Jerusalem. That's what he wants to do. He tells them about it in Romans 15. Paul also has a plan for a Spanish mission, which will take him to Spain, where the gospel was never preached. And he's coming through Rome first. So he doesn't want to come through Rome in which they have five house churches that are all fractured and despising and judging each other. When he gets there, he wants to have a unified assembly in Christ that will help support the effort of the gospel to places that it's never been heard before, mainly in Spain. Mainly in Spain. There's a room. Never mind. I'm not going to go there. The rain in Spain state. Never mind. I... Now, so flip the script. Paul now challenges this group, a faction of the so-called strong in faith, who despise the weak. And that's the problem. There's nothing wrong with being strong in faith and knowing your liberties in Christ. There's something wrong with being strong in faith, but then despising the Christian that's not there yet. And so... Paul was of a fifth group in which they were strong in faith. He was a Jewish Christian, but he was strong in faith, and he did not despise the weak. That's why he says, look, when you receive these other people into your house church, not just your home, but your house church, and they come from the other house church, don't receive them at the door and start with your doubtful disputations, your quarreling with them but receive them as Christ received you to the glory of the Father. That's the whole point that he's after in Romans fifteen seven. There's a lot of practical stuff. People say Romans is Paul's theological treatise, a theological discourse. It is that, but it's not all that. He's dealing with a situation, a situation which is just as dire today. There is no true unit integrity among the church at large today, and the only way that that unit integrity can be realized is if the, the enthusiasm that's wrongly directed is rebuked, reproved, and corrected on every side. In other words, until humility. Because it is by humility that we maintain the bond of peace in the Holy Spirit. And walk worthy of the calling wherewith we've been called. So it's not a matter of whether we'll be saved or not. The question is, will we walk worthily of our calling? We will, will we walk straight according to the gospel? And will we live in the messianic age that's already come in, Christ, in the Christ event? Or will we forfeit that life by holding on to the old man, the Adamic ontology, and his prejudices and biases, and thus lose the life of the coming age by not living it now? And that's, that's all coming up. There's some serious implications for the church today. So Paul flips the script. This time, the enthusiasm of the strong, Gentile Christians mainly, is one of conceit and not of confidence in God's mercy for oneself and for others. In fact, in Romans 11.32, the zeal or enthusiasm ought to be for God's mercy that's going to be shown to all. That's a right enthusiasm. The enthusiasm of the strong that Paul addresses here, which are mainly Gentile Christians, and some, not all, not only there, but elsewhere and in our own time, they were in effect boasting that branches were broken off from the cultivated olive tree. We know that that's Israel from Jeremiah 11, verses 16 through 19, that we hit pretty hard on Thursday night. And this enthusiasm is not about a good thing. 
Paul said, if you're going to have enthusiasm, it's good to be enthusiastic about a good thing. Today, it's going to be, it's good for you to be enthusiastic about a Steeler victory. Apologies to Chicago fans, but that's a limited enthusiasm. It's really good for you to be enthusiastic that God has imprisoned all Jews and Gentiles in the maximum security prison called disobedience and unbelief in order to open the doors to all of them through the finished work of Christ, in order to have mercy upon all. It's good to be enthusiastic about a good thing, Paul said to the Galatians in 4, 17 and 18. But he said, these false teachers are among you. They've got a wrong kind of zeal. They pretend to be really interested in you. But it's only so that they can get you males circumcised in a Jewish perversion or a Judaistic perversion of the gospel so they can boast in your flesh. That is, they can send out a bulletin and tell how many Gentile pagans they've circumcised. Same thing today. We baptized 200 people this week. So 200 people got wetter than they were before. In many cases, of course, that doesn't pertain. But I'm just trying to get into the main, my main thing is the Lord's calling on me has been, don't make the people of God wet with water. Make them wet with the water of the word by which they will be sanctified. Sanctify them, Jesus said. Speaking of believers, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. And that's John seventeen seventeen. So the enthusiasm of the strong is one of conceit. This is not enthusiasm about a good thing. It's a conceit that is running rampant across our national landscape today. In every quarter, whether it's social or political, religious, racial, ethnic, or regarding personal or group human achievements. And it's not a good thing. On the contrary, though, the gospel is the disclosure of God's righteousness. The gospel is the disclosure of the unveiling, the revelation of God's righteousness, which is his divine action taken for the deliverance of all of humankind, all of creation. It is the power of God for salvation for all the human race, especially but not exclusively to those that are presently believing that gospel. Especially but not exclusively. Faithful is the saying, Paul said. We suffer persecution and we labor like crazy and we endure all kinds of stuff for the gospel's sake because God is the Savior of all humankind, especially of those that believe. So we go everywhere, Paul says, and we preach a gospel with the intention to elicit faith so that people can have the life of the coming age now. The life of the coming age, which will belong to everyone then. Paul wanted and expected some of his Jewish brethren that were hardened branches and branches that were broken off to be saved even in the course of this evil age. But he expected all of them to be saved at the end of this age. That's the parousia. That's the coming of Christ. That's what we ought to be interested in, not the alignment of planets in which people's attention is drawn toward the creation over the creator. Yes, there's alignment of planets. Revelation 12, 1 and 2, we taught that before. It's not about looking for an alignment of the stars and planets, and then Jesus will come. It's about God's plan for Israel. It's about A.D. 70. It's about God's gospel. It's not about these weird things. It's not about some planet that nobody knows about, not even astronomers and astrologers and people of science. that's supposed to hit the earth. Let's say they said September 23rd, if my watch is 
That's the 24th. Okay. Oh, I woke up so relieved this morning. That didn't happen. Now, the gospel is the power of God for salvation of all the human race, especially and presently to everyone who has faith, whether Jew or pagan or barbarian. Paul said, I'm a debtor to all in Romans 1.15. So now, let's look at Romans 11.17. But if some branches were broken off, and these are the same, this is the same part of Israel, broken off branches from a cultivated olive tree, Jeremiah 11, 16 to 19, identifies the same group of people in Israel that is the hardened part that God gave a spirit of stupor to until a certain thing happens. But he says, if some branches were broken off and you, Gentile Christians, he's speaking to directly here, though a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and have become a participant in the richness of the root of the cultivated olive tree, that's Israel, God's people, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If your enthusiasm is rooted in this, in this arrogance, curb it, restrain it. Put it off. You know why? It's part of the Adamic ontology. It's part of the old man. It's part of the passing age. It's passe. It's not part of the life of participation in Messiah's faithfulness. It's not part of the new messianic age that is beginning to dawn. It's not part of the new creation it isn't part of the faith that works by love. Paul measures our faith. You know how Paul judges our faith? He judges Christians' faith and the real strength of it by the love that people show and the desire that people want their enemies to be saved. That's a faith that works by love. So he says, do not be arrogant toward the branches. That means enthusiastically triumphing over them as if you're better than they are. If you are boasting, but if you do want to go on and boast, Paul said, let me tell you this. Maybe this will convince you to stop your boasting. You don't bear the root. You're not sustaining this root. This root is sustaining you. We showed eventually that the root is, of course, Jesus Christ. Not the patriarchs, but the one who is the source of the patriarchs and the seed of the patriarchs, Christ the root. If you think you earned your salvation, you think you're holding Jesus Christ up on his throne next to the Father. You think you've gone up to heaven to bring Christ down. You think you've gone down to the abyss to bring Christ up. Paul rebukes that attitude in Romans 10. Jesus said, no man has ever ascended into heaven, that is, on his own merits. Nobody's gone to heaven on his own merits except the Son of Man who came down from heaven. And God raised him from the dead because of his faithful obedience to the extent of death. God raised him from the dead and caused him to be elevated so that he ascended to heaven on his own merit. And so I will ascend to heaven or go to heaven or have eternal life on his merit. My salvation is because God approves of Jesus Christ. Your salvation is because God approves of Jesus Christ. He is the root of David and the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the earth. He is the root and the offspring of David. He is the bright morning star. He's the star that arose from Jacob, but he's also the root of Jacob. Your salvation and mine is because God approves of Jesus Christ. God approves of Jesus Christ's faithfulness. And so all the human race receives rectification by grace, by his grace. Same thing is said in Ephesians. Paul's probably first epistle, not last. And it is Paul, not somebody else. 
When he writes to a pagan church that he didn't plant, he didn't even water, he's watering that church through his epistle. It's in Laodicea probably, in Ephesians 5.26. But he says, by grace you have been saved. Now this is what Peter called the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is his generosity. It's his obedience to the extent of death. It's his, the Christ event. By grace, you have been saved. That means saved permanently with a salvation that persists on through time, through the eternal state. You have that salvation by grace. And then he says, through faith or faithfulness, and that not of yourselves. The faithfulness is not your faithfulness. You're saved by grace through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Not of works, lest anyone should um, boast. It's not circumcision or uncircumcision. It isn't the group saying, well, we're circumcised, so we're saved, or the group that says, well, we're not circumcised, so we're saved. You think circumcision is painful, you guys. You better try thinking about undoing it, which is what some Gentile Christians made Jewish Christians do because of pressure. Let's not think about that. Now, do not be arrogant toward the branches. And if you want to persist in your boasting, recognize this. You don't sustain the root. The root sustains you. That'll maybe maybe convince them the other way. Just remember what I said at the outset of our study in Romans 11. Paul is reproving. All scripture is profitable for doctrine and for reproof. That means pulling somebody up short. But it goes further than that. And for correction, Paul's reproving, hopefully correcting. Correcting is when there's a turning around in the thinking. Correcting is when there's a humbling where there was once conceit. Correction, hopefully. Paul is reproving and hopefully correcting the Gentile Christians for being arrogant because of their elective elitism. He's quite forcefully telling Gentile Christians to put off their triumphal enthusiasm because it's rooted in the false idea that they are better off than the broken off branches, and it's rooted even more disastrously in the harmful assumption that those branches were broken off permanently. And Paul even uses different words for breaking off and breaking off permanently as he uses words that they have tripped, but not to fall totally. And we're going to get into some territory on Wednesday and Thursday where Paul isn't necessarily speaking for himself, but echoing, as Jesus did, the conceit of some people. In the church. And then he slam dunks it. It's like Paul saying, I said that. And people saying, see, Paul's on our side. He said that. And Paul said, I said that to say that I'm not saying that. And then they, they wither and wilt, you see. This assumption that they're bro- the branches were broken off permanently actually prevents these Gentile Christians, in that case, from being obedient to the faith. And Paul's whole ministry is to bring about obedience of the faith, the obedience of participation in Messiah's faithfulness among all the nations. This attitude actually prevents them from doing that, from participating in Messiah's faithfulness. It prevents them from living according to the gospel. It prevents them from walking worthily of their calling. That's why he's doing them a favor here. We can do none of these things. That is, walk worthily of our calling in Ephesians 4, 1 to 3. Walk straight line according to the gospel in Galatians 2, 11 and following. Or be obedient to the faith in Romans 1, 5. We can't do any of those things unless we're immersed in the word. In its proper interpretation, Romans 12, 1 to 3. So in verse 19, he says, so you, he's talking to those whom he's reproving but hasn't yet corrected. You, that is those of you that really want to keep on boasting against these broken off branches. 
You will say, now he's direct. He says, I'm not saying this, you're saying this. This is what you will say. Branches were broken off so that I may be grafted in. That's the boastful boast. It's like Goliath boasting against Israel. There's really not much difference. So Goliath's got to have his head removed, which is, of course, a shocking illustration that these Gentile Christians have to have their mind renewed, not their head removed, their mind renewed. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, that you might demonstrate what is that good and complete and perfect will of God. And stop thinking according to this present age, but rather be renewed in your thinking, in the spirit. That's Romans 12, 1 and 2. And then in verse 3, Paul says, I'm telling you this by the grace and the authority given to me as an apostle. Stop being arrogant. Much of Romans is along this line. If humility is the only way that we function in the kingdom of the heavens, unless you humble yourselves and become as this little child, you will in no way enter the kingdom of the heavens. If humility is the only way to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, in Ephesians 4, 1 to 3, then conceit's got to be put off of all kinds. And there's a great liberation in that. Branches were broken off so that I may be grafted in. Sounds a little like Elijah. I alone am left. There's a similar pride in here that was found in Elijah in the early part of the chapter. I alone am left. The Bible is not hagiographical when it comes to the prophets. In other words, it doesn't sanitize their stories to make them the life of the saints. The Bible doesn't sanitize the narratives of Elijah, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. It does not sanitize the biographies of Paul or Peter. It puts in there all their faults, all their passions, all their direct problems, all their sins in order to accentuate the grace of God. Elijah wasn't right on when he said that. Romans 11.20, rightly said, Paul said, they were broken off. Rightly said, they were broken off. Why? Because Jeremiah prophesied that God would break off the branches. He said, you are a shapely and fruitful olive tree. I shaped you. I made you fruitful. But now I've set a fire on it. And he doesn't say the branches are going to be consumed. He says they're going to be broken off. He doesn't say they're consumed or burned up, like some translations say. They are broken off. In Lamentations, Jeremiah later wrote, he said, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Who? Israel's not going to be consumed by the fire of judgment in A.D. 70. She's not going to be consumed by all of the terrible holocausts in history. She's not going to be consumed because it's of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. It's the Lord's mercies that some branches were broken off so that Gentiles could be grafted in so that, and this is what the Gentiles are missing, the broken off branches can be grafted in again. God doesn't annul the election of hardened Israel. He annuls their unbelief. He cancels their lack of faith. And everybody gets faith as a gift when they see the one whom was pierced, Yahweh, who was pierced. Every eye will see him. And when every eye sees him, all flesh together will experience the salvation of God. Rightly said, Paul said, they were broken off because of unbelief. And you are caused to stand, he says, by faith. Now, if they understand what he's saying, he's saying you're holding your place in the olive tree by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ 
which is eventually going to be the reason why God grafts in these branches that were temporarily broken off. So it's these mercies that Israel is not consumed that are mercies given to us all. And that's what Paul's alluding to in Romans 12.1, by the mercies of God, by the mercies of God, that you are part of the Israel of God that cannot be, be consumed. Broken off is a temporary thing. Consume means annihilation. The branches in the fire that God sets of historical judgment on this olive tree doesn't consume the branches. They break off first, but God grafts them on again. So it would be really dumb for someone to say, yay, let's triumph over this team. We destroyed them today. And then that's the first game of the season. And then as I used the analogy before, that team that they triumphed over wins the next 15. And the team that's boasting loses the next 15. That's an analogy. I'm flipping the script a little bit here. This is an analogy to us Gentile Christians boasting over the Jews when they're going to win big time when Christ returns. And we'll look like idiots and be ashamed in his coming, but of course be saved through that shame. So all of this is toward the betterment and the elevation of the church in every quarter. So do not be haughty, he says, but be afraid, he says. Why? Now, if the scripture 366 times says don't be afraid, that's one for every day of the year, including leap year. If there's 366 fear nots in the scripture, why is Paul telling them to be afraid? Well, it's a little ironic. He said, stop being haughty, but be afraid. Because, you see, if your thinking is right, you should be afraid. But your thinking isn't right, so you don't have to be afraid. But what he's saying here is this. If God did not spare the natural branches, in other words, and the word is used, phytomai, if he didn't spare them, But the real issue is the same word is used in Romans 8.32. God did not spare his son. So Paul's saying if the way you're thinking is if God didn't spare the branches, in other words, he's going to annihilate them. He's annihilated them. He has elected them in order to annihilate them. If that's the way you think, then you better be afraid that he might do the same thing to you. Because if he's that kind of capricious Calvinistic God, and I'm not speaking of John Calvin, but some of his students, if he's that type of a God, you better fear. If he elects some to damnation and elects others to salvation, and then some of the... Calvinists will actually tell you, people that call themselves Calvinists, you can live the spiritual life and believe in Jesus Christ and do everything right your whole life but still go to hell because you weren't of the elect. That's a stupid gospel for one thing, and if you do believe it, you ought to fear. That would be kind of a waste if you did all those good things and then you go to hell. The church ought to take heed here then. So he says, if you, if God didn't spare the natural branches, that is, if he gave them up forever, maybe he won't spare you either. You ought to be afraid instead of arrogant. The church ought to take heed here then. Some of the enthusiasm we have may need to be restrained or totally put aside with the old man, the Adamic ontology, and it ought to be replaced by Godly fear, awesome reverence for God and his action in Christ by which he reconciled the world to himself. That's the kind of fear that God intends us to have. It is a reverential awe in the presence of the God whose love is served by his wrath, whose justice is rectifying of all and whose salvific act in Christ reconciles everything in the heavens and earth to himself. That's 
what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4 when he wrote a very harsh letter to the Corinthians. Guess which letter that was? 1 Corinthians. He caused a repentance in them. He caused a sorrow that led to repentance. And he said, and your repentance has wrought in you a new godly fear and a new kind of enthusiasm. Read about it in 2 Corinthians 7.11. A proper enthusiasm. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of Yahweh, reverential awe of him, is the beginning of wisdom. And guess what wisdom is? It's the wisdom that the scriptures give you about the salvation that's in the faithfulness of Christ Jesus. Timothy, ever since you were a child, you knew the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise, give you wisdom with respect to what? The salvation that is through the faithfulness that is in Christ Jesus. Wisdom is about God's salvation. It's about standing in awe at the breadth of it, the width of it, the length of that salvation, the totality of it. All the nations coming in, come on, Pleroma, the full pagan Pleroma. All Israel being saved, pas Israel, that's something to be enthusiastic about. And it makes you change your whole view of how you see people, all people, everybody. You've heard that it's been said to love your neighbor but hate your enemy. I say to you, Jesus said, I'm flipping the script on that. Love your enemies. And then he goes on to say, and he, his doctrine is this. If you want to be perfect like your father in heaven, that is perfect in love, love your enemies. God loves his enemies, and you're one, and I'm one. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. Israel is enemies of the gospel, according to Romans eleven twenty eight. That's where we're getting soon. They are enemies. The hardened part of Israel is enemies of the gospel for your sake, he said to these Gentile Christians. But they're beloved of God because of the patriarchs. God loves the enemies of the gospel, which we were when Christ died. God saw the whole human race as one lump. And when Christ died, he saw the human race, including us in the future, as enemies, his enemies. And that's when Christ died. How much more now that we're reconciled can we enjoy this peace with God? The measure of your faith can be determined by your desire or not that your enemies be saved. Paul said it this way, the love of Christ now constrains me. It controls me. Because if one died for all, and he did, then all have died. And henceforth, though I've known people after the flesh and even knew Christ after the flesh at one time, I don't know him that way anymore. I don't know people after the flesh anymore. I don't know them after their sin. I don't know them after their crime. I don't know them after their race, their skin color, their beliefs. Paul said, the test of whether you're operative in the Christian faith is whether you're controlled by love. Because we're talking about Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision as a label means anything. But what does mean something is a faith that works by love. Galatians 5, 6. So it's a combination of preaching and teaching today. Salvation wisdom. Wisdom or the reverential fear of God is our awe at his saving action in Christ. That's the beginning of wisdom. It's Christological. It's soteriological. It's about salvation. The Gentiles are holy because the root that bears them is holy. This ought to curb their enthusiasm if their enthusiasm arises from conceit and from the misinformed notion that Israel has been rejected permanently. Certain groups actually believe that. Let's see. Let me think of one. 
Oh, the Nazis. Just let that one settle in for a minute. Israel's been rejected permanently. False doctrine. To make room for the Gentile Christians to be accepted permanently. But here's the thing. If the rejection of Israel by God is permanent, then his election of them in the first place is not permanent. Therefore, the Gentiles ought to fear that they too can be rejected because their election, like Israel's election, may also be impermanent and subject to a capricious God. And therefore, these Gentile Christians are actually assuming that Israel lost its salvation by its lack of faithfulness to God rather than keeps their salvation in the eschatological future because of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. If you think that your faithfulness is keeping you in, you're dead wrong. It's the faithfulness of God expressed in Jesus Christ. And the more you understand that, the more the faithfulness of Christ will be expressed in you. Let me say that again, because that's a new one. It's the faithfulness of God expressed in Jesus Christ that saves you. And the more you realize that it's the faithfulness of God expressed in Christ the more you will experience the faithfulness of Christ expressed in you. I was crucified with Christ, Paul said. Nevertheless, I live. Yet it is not I that live, but Christ that lives in me. In the life that I now live, I live by the what? The faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me. Faith that works by love. The faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me. I don't frustrate the grace of God, Paul said, like some of you are doing. Even Peter was doing it. Why? Because he who should have known better when Jesus said that to the Syrophoenician woman, the woman of Canaan, Peter should have known better than to withdraw from table fellowship with pagan Christians because of pressure from Jerusalem believers, from the heavyweights. The dear old Dr. So-and-sos, the holy, most holy reverend so-and-sos that came down from Jerusalem, Peter started to withdraw. And even Paul's partner, Barnabas, started to withdraw. And Paul said, that tears it. And he laid into Peter and he said, you know better. I'm taking you up right now. He says, I'm calling you right face to face. I'm calling you out right here in Antioch, he said to Peter. And then you know what he said to Peter? You're not walking in a straight line according to the gospel. You're not living according to the gospel. You're forfeiting the life of the coming age that you are supposed to be experiencing and that you preach about. You're forfeiting the life of the coming age. You're maintaining your Adamic ontology as a Jew after the flesh. You're conceited in your thinking that you have to be separated from these Gentiles. Paul lit into him, and thank God he did, and Peter seems to be thankful, at least later, that he did. As we know from Second Peter, he's, he calls Paul our dearly beloved brother according to the wisdom God gave to him. I like what Paul S. Menear says. Once in a while you read a scholar that's got the point. Paul S. Menear. I still have to ask Mike Menear at the potter's shed if this is a relative. M-I-N-E-A-R. He gets what Paul's up to here. He says one side's disobedience had been the means of the other side's redemption. The other side's redemption become the means of the first side's return. Then he said, thus there would be none who had not been disobedient and none who had not been the recipients of mercy. By means of this logic, he says, the apostle reached the position of asserting that Israel, disobedient, hard-necked Israel, the enemy of God, had throughout remained beloved by God. God still loved them, so too should the Gentile Christians. He went on to say, Paul, for him, the measure of faith became the degree to which one genuinely hopes for the salvation of the enemy. There's where 
it can sting. This is already true for many of you. You're already in that measure of faith. But this might sting a little bit. It's the drilling before the filling. But there is no billing. For him, the measure of faith became the degree to which one genuinely hopes for the salvation of the enemy. Paul said, I could wish myself a curse for my own brethren's sake. A curse from Christ that they would be saved. He, of course, knew that he would never be accursed, and he also knew that they would be saved. But right now it hurts. Right now it hurts. It hurts when people reject the word. It hurts when people remain conceited about their own group bias. It hurts. It hurt Paul. It was a constant grief to him. The only relief he had was in the hope that the expectation, this certain confident expectation that all Israel was going to be saved. At the Perusia, when the liberator comes from Zion, that he comes from the Jews, he comes from the Davidic ruling royal line. The redeemer will come from Zion in Romans eleven twenty six and 27. And he says, and he will take away ungodliness from Jacob. The lamb who took away the sin of the world can surely take away the ungodliness of Jacob or Israel. And he will. Paul knows this. The scriptures know this. Jeremiah knows it. Isaiah knows it. All the prophets know it because they all speak of the restoration of all things, including Israel, including all the nations. Why don't preachers speak about that today? Why don't they? I don't say that to create fractionalism. I say that to say that there's only going to be unity and unit integrity in the church that's effective for missionary enterprise if all of us understand the mercy of God that's directed toward all. The vision of universal saving significance of one Jesus Christ and the universal impact of his cross is the most unifying message in all the world. And it will unify the church. And when you get unity where there was once disunity, unit integrity is the most effective advantage of a team, of a missionary team especially. That's why Paul's going to Spain. He wants to have a unified front right in the heart of the cosmos, which was the Roman Empire. He wanted to have a unified assembly. He did not say to the church in Rome, like he said to the church of God in Thessalonica. He didn't say to the churches in Rome, like he said even in Galatia, the churches in Galatia, there were three of them. He says in Romans 1-7, to the saints in Rome, because they're split up. There's five factions. He speaks about the justifying love of God to all humankind to promote unity, knowing that unit integrity in the church means love for one another. And when Jesus said, when you love one another, then the whole world will know, everyone will know, all will know that you are my disciples and they won't be scattered abroad because of idiotic prophetic predictions. They'll be drawn to you because of unrestricted love shown by you. What a difference. So in closing, principle, God justifies the ungodly because Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 4, 5, Romans 5, 6. Love your enemies in order to be perfect like your father in heaven is only the love that the Holy Spirit pours abroad in our hearts. It's the gift of God's own love to us. It's God's gift of his own love. In Romans 5, 5. And it's the lovers of God that are the lovers of the enemies of God, even. So, here in Romans 11, I'll just close with these two principles, and then I'll take up. I keep forgetting. I might still be alive Wednesday. And planet, whatever it is, might not hit us by Wednesday. We may still be here Wednesday. We can't. We don't boast of tomorrow. That's what the scripture says. I think it's Proverbs 27.1. I'm old. I can't remember like I used to. But I think it says something about don't brag about tomorrow because you don't know what a day may bring. So we might be here. I might be here Wednesday. If I am, I'll take up this mantle again and we'll keep teaching. You might be here Wednesday. Who knows? But the first principle is God justifies the ungodly because Christ died for the ungodly. The second principle is, in Romans eleven twenty eight, 28, God has made the hardened Israel partially for a time 
broken off the branches to be grafted in later. He has done that temporarily because though they are the enemies of the gospel for your sake, Gentiles, they are beloved by God for the patriarch's sake. And so he will fulfill the promise to the patriarchs for Israel. He's going to take away ungodliness right out of Jacob. Jacob's got a problem. What is it? Ungodliness in him. Impiety in him. Irreverence, apostasy, idolatry, all kinds of sinfulness. What are you going to do about it? I'm going to come and take it out of them. I'm going to take a stony heart out of these hardened hearts. I'm going to take the stony heart out, put a new heart in. I'm going to put a new spirit in them. Then I'm going to put my own spirit in them to cause them to walk according to my ordinances, which are love one another and love God, love God and love your neighbor. I'll cause them to do it. What are you going to do about the world? What's the world's problem? It's riddled with sin. What are you going to do? Take away the sin of the world. Jacob, they hate the gospel. They hate Christ. They've rejected Christ, the hardened part of Israel. Like Elijah said, they've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets. Now they've killed the son of God, your own son. What are you going to do? going to take away the ungodliness that does that. I'm going to destroy the ungodliness. I'm going to have Jesus Christ himself in his own death by which he was rejected by them, bear their own sins in his own body on the cross. I'm going to have their rejection of him be the basis of his acceptance of them. That's what I'm going to do. That's God's plan. You can't think of that. We couldn't have thought of that. Who has known the mind of the Lord to be his counselor? Who could have ever gone back in eternity before time and said, God, I think you ought to do it this way. That's preaching. We'll close. Second principle, final principle. Christian unit integrity can only be had in the spirit. Holy Spirit who even today is giving the vision of the universal sinfulness of the human race and the universal mercy of God through Jesus Christ. That's a lot of Romans. The universal vision of the sinfulness of the human race and the universal mercy of God through Jesus Christ. That's not a game changer. That's a mind changer. That's a flipped script. That is what we ought to be believing. That's what flips our own script on life and flips our conceit and brings in humility. Keep that conceit. You keep the old man on. You lose the life of the coming age, which you could be experienced. You don't lose your salvation. You lose your living of a life that you could be living that comes from the coming age because you want to cherish the old and hold on to your, what I'm going to talk about this week and coming weeks, group bias. You want to hold on to your group bias and your common sense that goes with it. Common sense. If you're going to get into the scriptures, you're going to go past common sense into God's uncommon wisdom. Common sense will make you bias. The uncommon wisdom of God will make you love all humankind and wish the salvation of your enemy. It only makes, there's a new kind of common sense. I will close with this. What if somebody did you wrong? What if somebody's doing your nation wrong? Do you think the solution for that would be to kill them and let them burn forever and eternity? Do you think that damnation would be the best way out of this and the best way that you'd feel satisfaction? Or would you rather see that person transform to become the person that can't do what they did to you because of the transformation into the likeness of Christ and their conversion? And for those of you that still want to hold on to, I hope they hurt a little bit. It will hurt a little bit. So be relieved. It hurts to be transformed. There's weeping because you're separated from the Adamic ontology that you cherished. And that's all perishing is. Perishing, definition, cherishing Adam. 
perishing is cherishing the life in Adam and forfeiting the life of the coming age, which you could be living now and that you will be living then, but you're forfeiting living it now by cherishing the Adamic ontology. So it involves weeping to separate yourself from that dearly cherished Adamic self. And there's also gnashing of teeth because it hurts to be transformed. It takes a little bit of suffering. And the sufferings of this present time, though, good news, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that follows, not only in the ages to come, but in the transformation that comes right in this life. So thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We pray that you'll rivet home the truths and the principles that are so cherished. May we cherish the word that speaks of our co-crucifixion rather than the nature that we try to preserve in Adam. May we cherish your word and treasure it in the heart of our hearts that we may not sin against you by cherishing the old man. May we put off the old man with all of his deeds and attitudes and dispositions and loudmouth conceit in some cases. And may we put on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is humble-minded. As he has spoken to us today, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Thank you, Father, and thank you, Lord.